kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 21. Acts 17, beginning in verse 16. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshippers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. In our last study, the Apostle Paul was taken to Athens by some of the Christians in Berea to protect him from the Grecian Jews who were seeking to not only undermine his ministry but seemingly to get him arrested or killed. He was left in Athens alone but sent word to Timothy and Silas to join him there as soon as they were able. We do not have any way to determine how long this reunion took. The trip back to Berea would take some time, and we're not certain how they traveled to reach the city. It is possible that they sailed along the southwest coast of the Aegean and rounding the Achaean Peninsula reached the city through its harbor in the Saronic Gulf, or they may have stealthily diverted from their path to the sea and embarked on the long journey to Athens overland, in which case the trip would have been more than 230 miles. Furthermore, it would be necessary for Timothy and Silas to give the brethren in Berea enough stability for them to exist on their own, especially if Paul had not been able to distribute the gifts of the Spirit among them before he was forced out of town. Thus, picking up in Acts 17, verse 16, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. The Athens in which Paul was deposited by the brethren was no longer the administrative capital of the region as it had once been when the very foundations of politics were laid by the movers and shakers of its remarkable society in the centuries before the birth of Jesus. Corinth was the capital of southern Greece during the Roman period, but Athens was still very much a cultural and intellectual center and renowned as the wellspring of philosophy and reason for the rest of the civilized world. If Paul entered the city by land, it was most likely via the Panathenaean Way, which terminated at the Acropolis, where one would find the Parthenon and the temples of Roma and Nike, and just to the southeast, the temples of Bacchus and Zeus. If Paul came by the sea, the road that led into the Agora from the port of Piraeus was lined with temples and altars and decorated tombs before one even reached the forest of idols in the midst of the city. 
Mark Moore suggests that provocative phrase, forest of idols, as a literal rendering of the term translated given over to idols in the New King James Version. The word was generally used to describe a densely wooded area or a thick head of hair, and such a term was necessary to capture the prevalence of idolatry in Athens. This situation was well attested even by non-Christians. In fact, Petronius quipped that it was easier to meet a god in Athens than a man. But while others might have marveled at the extremes of Athenian devotion— or the grandeur of the artistry and skill that went into the manufacture of its paraphernalia and accoutrements, Luke informs that the Apostle Paul had no appreciation for what he saw there, but rather his spirit was provoked within him. One translation says he went into a conniption. You see, Paul understood that behind the masterfully fashioned forms representing the gods and goddesses and lower creatures and beings of the Greek pantheon, were demons, and to worship idols was to participate in fellowship with demons. As we've noted several times before, the precise identity and origin of demons is a controversial subject, but without controversy, they are among that class of infernal personalities called unclean spirits who serve the purposes of Satan and oppose the purposes of God. Fellowship with demons means no fellowship with God, and it invites all manner of evil and spiritual ruin into one's life. Without settling the question of demonic identity, it is difficult to know exactly what the connection between demons and idolatry is. Those who suggest that demons are the spirits of evil dead men point out that in the ancient world, The wicked and arrogant kings were worshipped after their deaths, and suppose that this is the meaning. Those who worship idols are offering their affections to cruel rulers whom they loathed while on earth. However, we would remind our listeners that one of the works of unclean spirits is to deceive and delude those who do not like to think about God and who are looking for something false to believe. The scripture suggests that these evil spiritual beings have the power to plant specific lying thoughts and ideas into the minds of men and women in order to lead them deeper and deeper into error and destruction according to their passions and desires. So it is likely that Paul's meaning is that the myths, the cultic worship, and the mystical ideas of the idolatrous cults were inspired by demons— built by the nefarious genius to inflame human lusts, to quench the longings of the spirit, and to confound moral reasoning. Thus, to participate in such religion gave further advantage to the devil and led to even more profound depravity and spiritual bondage. That was precisely the scene which had been acted out on the stage of Athenian history since its rise to prominence. Greek culture was very religious in this sense of the term, but demon-inspired religion is not morally focused. It consisted mostly of ominous legends and rituals for the betterment of an individual's life circumstances, and the society was one of the most morally degenerate that ever existed in human history. Verse 17, Therefore he reasoned. Reasoning referred to Paul's preaching and teaching. This is how he rose to meet the evil and darkness and demonic power that held sway over the city. And this same man would later write to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 10 verses 4 through 5 
that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. The Athenian synagogue had evidently not made the impact on the local culture that James expected should have been made by the weekly reading and preaching of Moses, Acts 15.21. Luke mentions no significant interest in or opposition to Paul's preaching here. So it's possible that he was met with something that in its own way is more frustrating and painful than resistance, indifference. But whatever the case, soon Paul moved beyond the synagogue to the marketplace or the agora. For moderns who think of a grocery store when they hear the term marketplace, a little historical context is needed to appreciate why Paul chose this location for his ministry. Indeed, the agora was a site for commerce and trade, but it was also a major center for the exchange of ideas and the shaping of society. It had taken on this quality during the democratic period of Athens' infancy. It was a large rectangular plaza with covered walks called porches along each side. The interior was filled with temples, public buildings, fountains, monuments, and statues. The artwork was generally quite lewd and sensual. Throughout the day, swarms of people would fill the agora to peddle wares, and when the business began to die down, great philosophers, as well as some who simply thought themselves worthy of that title, would find some kind of platform from which to instruct the people. Even in the area surrounding the agora, the workshops often doubled as philosophical schools, especially during the golden age of Greek culture, such as the acclaimed cobbler's shop where Socrates and his associate Simon the shoemaker taught the youth of Athens who were not permitted to enter the main market. It's possible that Paul began in the little shops at first and then worked his way to the major center. We have already seen evidence that Paul was educated in rhetorical conventions of the day and would have known how to claim the attention of a crowd. But when they listened to him, they heard a message unlike anything ever before promoted in the glorious city. Luke's term, reasoning, reaches beyond Paul's work in the synagogue to include his marketplace ministry as well, and the word means to dialogue or converse. Shortly, we will find an example of what these dialogues sounded like. However, Luke passes over that information here to focus attention on a new kind of opposition to Paul's work. One may remember that the last time Paul directed his efforts to the pagans, they thought he was a god himself and tried to offer sacrifices to him, Acts 14, 11-13. This time he found a very different sort of response, verse 18. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. At this time the academy, the old school of Plato, was just starting to come back to prominence after long years of what N.T. Wright called a cautious agnosticism that had made them virtually irrelevant. In the meantime, the two schools mentioned here had risen to the highest degree of influence, the Stoics being the most popular. 
The Stoics, so-called because their founder, Zeno, had used the Agora's painted porch, called in Greek the Stoa, Poikile, as his lecture hall, were established more than 200 years before the birth of Christ. Their school was pantheistic, teaching that the ordering principle of the universe to which all things were subject, which they called the Lagos, permeated all things. They believed that in time the Lagos, which they conceived as an internal flame, would eventually consume and annihilate the universe in a great conflagration, only to rise and start over again afterwards. Within this system, Zeno had taught his students that the key to right living was self-denial. But the philosophy encouraged not merely a dominance over personal passions and hungers, but an utter repudiation of them. The highest pleasure could be attained only by craving nothing. Thus the system bred coldness and apathy, not unlike the Pharisaism that Jesus encountered during his own ministry among the Jews. The Epicureans were quite the opposite. Founded by Epicurus around the same time that Zeno founded the Stoics, they were not exactly atheistic, more deistic, teaching that the gods, if they existed, were far removed from the affairs and operations of the world, but the gods did not feature into their thinking about the functions of the world for this reason. They conceived, rather, that the world was governed by something called atoms, natural forces that collided into one another at random, thus dictating the course of things. Their conceptions were essentially identical to modern naturalists, and like a preview in history, their view of morality was the very same that modern naturalists present to the world as though it were a novel product of science and enlightenment and their own brilliance. They contended that pleasurable indulgence was the key to right living. Yet they were not complete hedonists because they did reason that certain behaviors should be avoided if, in the long term, they were found to cause more harm than good. Both groups denied the immortality of the soul and utterly disdained the idea that those who died could ever live again. So we can see that the intellectual landscape shaped by these forces was not at all smooth ground for the promotion of the Christian message. And when they encountered Paul, or more literally, when some took the time to converse with them, their assessment of his teaching was not positive. Verse 18 continues, And some said, What does this babbler want to say? The word babbler means seed picker, and referred to little birds that would hop here and there to peck up scattered kernels of grain. Zeno himself had used this expression as an idiomatic slur against one of his disciples, who he accused had no real intelligent thoughts of his own, but was just stringing together borrowed ideas and expressions to try to pass himself off as an intelligent. Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. The first charge was insulting, but this one was potentially quite dangerous. The proclamation of foreign gods was one of the grounds on which the great Socrates himself was found guilty of corrupting the youth of Athens and sentenced to death. It is important to realize that in ancient polytheistic paganism, although there were so many gods that one might think it would be hardly noticeable to introduce one more, yet the very concept of religion emphasized the delicate balance that held the society together with the people doing what was necessary to curry the gods' favor 
and thus receive the blessing needed for their prosperity. The gods were generally localized, and it was one thing for the gods to multiply the pantheon themselves to their celestial offspring, but to turn the gods of other lands uh, over to the devotions and affections of the people might be very insulting. For these more enlightened classes, it might also have been a concern that some foreign cult would disrupt their efforts to make Athenian society all that it was. It seems most likely that these critics were so personally blinded to the simplicity of true religion that they mistook the resurrection, or anastasis in Greek, to be a goddess and the companion to this Jesus. Of course, the concept of the resurrection was offensive to them in and of itself, but in the Greco-Roman religion it was very common for ideals and virtues and experiences to be personified as deities within their pantheon. Verse 19, And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus, or Mars Hill, was a term that could be used two ways, either in reference to the rocky summit just south of the Agora, where the Supreme Court of Athens held its meetings, or as a proper name for that court itself, wherever it happened to meet. Most likely Luke means that Paul was taken to the court on the hill. Note that they, that is the latter group of critics who had accused him of promoting foreign gods, took him and brought him. This sounds to me like a sort of citizen's arrest, and now Paul is not merely being accused of the same crime as Socrates, he is being brought before the same court that condemned Socrates to death. Sometimes the Areopagus is spoken of as though it were merely a philosopher's club, but N.T. Wright has made a compelling case that it was a legal court, and what Paul was about to deliver was not merely a speech before an ancient Toastmasters society, it was an answer to an accusation that might have led to very grim circumstances if it had not gone as well as it did. Those who took and brought Paul were saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore we want to know what these things mean. At this point, Luke inserts a somewhat surprising parenthetical comment, if we're correct in assessing the nature of this conference, when he jabs in verse 21, For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. If this was in fact a trial in which Paul was being accused of a rather serious charge, why would Luke choose to highlight the Athenians' obsession with novelty here? I suggest that Luke makes this statement in direct response to the accusation that Paul was a babbler. Remember that the term referred to one who was unable to come up with an original thought or an idea worth serious consideration. As we noted a moment ago, that term had been coined or at least utilized by Zeno, the founder of the Stoics. The word Luke summons here in reference to the Athenians... These words were themselves first spoken by the legendary Athenian politician Demosthenes 400 years before this time as an indictment that his people were, in the words of E.L. Powell, more curious to hear the news or the last excitement than to recognize the impending destruction of the liberties of the people. So it seems that Luke is preparing the reader 
for an underwhelming, anticlimactic response to the gospel from the intellectual elite of the world. The word of God, the good news of Christ, the seed of the kingdom, is God's power to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But it takes a poor and humble spirit to hear it. Those who lack such a disposition may give the appearance of listening merely to criticize and cast it aside when the presentation is finished. A Berean spirit is to be desired much more than an Athenian intellect. Thanks for listening to Verse by Verse. I'm Clinton DeFrance. I'm a Christian Bible student and evangelist from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and this podcast is made available by the Congregation of Christians of which I am a member in East Tulsa. Please come meet us if you have the chance. You can learn more about us at our website, tulsachurchofchrist.com. Our music is from Andrew Martin, a very talented Christian brother in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas. You can check out his SoundCloud for more beautiful and uplifting productions from him. For news, articles, previous episodes, or to request a Bible study or a lecture series with me, visit vbvpodcast.com. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a good review if you enjoy the studies. God bless and have a great week. From all the dark places of earth, heathen races, oh, see how the thick shadows fly. The voice of salvation awakes every nation, come over and help us, they cry. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's better exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. With praising and singing and jubilant ringing, their arms of rebellion cast down. At last every nation, the Lord of salvation, with glory their effort shall crown. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.